You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, my name is Marek Innet-Ponhuis, and I am a professor of material science at the University of Wollongong. More important, I am the new co-host for Lab Notes. I am very excited to become part of Lab Notes, and I'm even more excited to introduce my first guest, Paul Wellings, the current Vice-Chancellor of my own university. Paul was born in the United Kingdom and spent parts of his childhood in India and Africa before attending school in the United Kingdom. He is an ecologist by training and his education included King's College London and the Universities of Durham and East Anglia. He has had a long career as an academic and a research manager. And Paul has firmly established himself both in the country of his birth as well as in Australia where he currently resides. He has a long list of accolades that include honours such as Commander of the British Empire and he is also a Deputy Lieutenant in the United Kingdom. Over the years, Paul has gone back and forth between the United Kingdom and Australia, spanning almost 40 years. For example, prior to taking the reins at Wollongong, he was Vice-Chancellor of Lancaster University. And before that, he was Deputy Chief Executive of the CSRO in Australia. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Paul. He has a unique perspective on science, research management and research commercialization. Please join me for this fascinating conversation with my first guest, Professor Paul Wellings, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Wollongong. Enjoy. What made you decide to become a scientist? Uh, interesting, interesting question. So I, I went to um, a selective boys high school in England and there were only really two choices, that you either went in the science stream or you went in the classics stream. And for the boys who went into the science, because it was a boys' school, you could do double maths and physics. The really clever guys did that. Uh, and in between, you know, there was biology, chemistry, uh, physics were the other set choices. This is English A-levels. Yeah. And I went into the biology stream. And it was a school that um, pushed kids towards medical training and things like that. So the, a lot of boys went on to read medicine at university. Um, I, I went away on a training course at one point when I was about 17, and it was an immersive field course on ecology. And I pivoted away from wanting to do sort of biomedical things at high school, thinking actually, so this is 1972, mm -hmm. uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, actually ecology was just emerging as a sort of a legitimate area to go into. And so I, I moved, much to my parents' distress, I have to say, they thought I was going to be an orthodontist and <laughs> <laughs> make lots of yeah. money. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I ended up uh, reading zoology and botany uh, jointly and then moving into, into science from there. And of course I hit, this is early 70s, that intersection of... Uh, people thinking about big systems effects, mm -hmm. so the emergence of computing into into chemistry and biology and and the sort of legitimate things that we now do with big data sets, and on the other end, of course, all of the molecular people were coming through. King's had Morris Wilkins, who was the third Nobel laureate in the structure of DNA. So Morris uh, was in biophysics in a related department to where I was at. And there was a big buzz around molecular biology. So you suddenly find yourself just surrounded by choice yeah. you know, as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, thinking, goodness me, I didn't even know this box was there to open, let alone what the content of the box would be. Because uh, I was fairly naive. You know, I, I sort of knew that science was a good thing to go into. Um, so that was, uh, that was one area. And then by chance, um, I spent two summer vacations as an intern with Unilever Research. So Unilever had their mm -hmm. 
British research headquarters just up the road from my parents' house. Um, and I, I worked in the lab that was designing um, front, what, what's now become front loader uh, washing powders. Oh, uh, yep. And so I, I was basically had two summers of doing physical chemistry um, and looking at the design of foaming rates in, in washing powders, um, which sounds a bit ordinary other than, you know, intellectually it was very stimulating thinking how do you solve these problems. But I realised through that actually I was, my chemistry wasn't strong enough. I was surrounded by a group of really great chemists, applied chemists in Unilever, part of technical staff, and then there were some interns. And while I could solve the problems they were setting, I realised I didn't know how to ask the questions that they were asking. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like when you're in science, you can find the boundaries of your capabilities, and my, my skill sets were slightly different. And those two things together sort of led me down into sort of mathematical biology and population ecology and the space that I ended up in. I love foam because I did my PhD on foams, but I came from the physics side. Um, were there any particular mentors that stand out from your time, either in high school or in uni or both? Yeah, I was I was very lucky. I think I think um, one of my high school teachers, George George Briggs, um, was towards the end of his career, but at the time in the UK there was a brand new curriculum funded by the Nuffield Foundation which was quite experiential. And until then, the curricula for high school had been very dry. And this was, uh, here's a data set, reinterpret the data set, tell, you, tell us about causation, correlation, all those mm. sorts of things. So it was, it was actually quite challenging. It was more at the problem-solving end. Um, and that had come into the high school I was in. So I was a guinea pig for that. And George, who must have been in his late 60s or mid-60s, um, was quite happy to actually have a brand new curriculum to teach right at the end of his career. And, you know, looking back at that, I mean, he was a really a star person to, uh, to you know, get a pile of 15, 16, 17-year-old boys to think, actually, this is an interesting space to be in. Because um, we were all thinking we'd better off be, you know, playing sport or something like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, it's you know, so all of that. And then working my way through at, at university, the, uh, my honours supervisor, um, Roland Emson was, you know, not not maybe an outstanding scientist, but a great a great mentor in terms of you know encouraging uh, students. And then by the time I was doing my PhD, um, I was very fortunate to join the lab of a man called Tony Dixon, um, and he had a very a very large stable of people around him. I think I think the when I was there there were. A dozen PhD students and two postdocs oh, wow. in Tony's lab, so a very big group yeah. uh, in three sections, and I was in one of the sections. But he saw us all every day. He would walk through, so he 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 would come and have either morning or afternoon tea with the group and go around and talk to every student, PhD student, and say, "What are you up to? How's it going?" And if you had, you know, if he had unusual data, he'd stop and and look at the data with you, if you just said, oh, it's all going well, he'd keep, keep going. Uh, but it was that continual mentoring and yeah. support in the background. Um, and, of course, a group that size is, becomes almost self-supporting because students look out for each other and there was sufficient of us that there was a five-a-side football team and all that sort of stuff. So, so it was a very, it was a hothouse, really, of exchanging ideas. That's great. Um, so I had a couple of my friends who are not in the university yeah. sector were asking me, what are you up to this week? And I said, well, I'm excited to interview the vice chancellor of my own university. So they said, what does the vice chancellor do? So what, can you give a brief overview of what, what you do on a daily basis? There's probably never a real yeah. same yeah. day. Well, you know, I, th I, th I think the job, you know, when you're in universities and you get to be a, a dean or a DVC or a vice chancellor, your world outlook is most probably three weeks to three years. So it's very different to being in a business or being a senior bureaucrat where your world outlook might be three minutes to three weeks yeah. because you're thinking about either the minister or cash flows or all sorts of things. So a lot of, a lot of what what I spend my time doing is thinking about strategic positioning of the university, 
either within the context of the state government or the federal government, or um, the succession planning, knowing that you know some people are retiring or some research groups are being reviewed and things like that. So a lot, a lot of those sort of uh, slightly over the horizon um, strategic issues, yeah. and then slightly weirdly combined with that, because um, the role of VC is where the admin and the academic side of the house meet. There's there's just an awful lot of operational paperwork that ends up on your desk where you're the delegate that has to mm -hmm. sign off on that. So modifications to major grants, or disciplinary issues, all sorts of things like that. So there's there's all, there's that side of the paperwork which is is pretty consuming actually, and um, some of it requires detailed attention because. Um, you know, you're dealing with either the reputation of the university or, you know, the lives of individual people within the university. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's a slightly weird answer, but it's, it, it is this, it's a sort of slightly dog bone shaped job that you've got highly operational stuff and then, and then long term strategic stuff and not a lot in the middle because other colleagues are filling in those bits. Yeah. Uh, Great. Yeah. Um, can I take you back a little bit as well? Can you briefly explain? where you grew up and what your favorite pastime was as a child? Yeah, so I, well, my dad had been in the British Army, so I spent the first part of my life actually overseas. So I grew up in northern India, in Darjeeling. So my father was attached to the Gurkhas mm -hmm. uh, up, up there, uh, came back to England, and then uh, we were transferred to Nigeria when Nigeria became independent, there was a transfer of power from the British to what became the Republic of Nigeria, and my father was part of the delegates, the group that did did that. Um, so I was still quite quite young, and then, um, so Nigeria had become independent, uh, the Congo Civil War broke out, and my father was then transferred into the United Nations mm -hmm. in the Congo, so the Nigerian army put a battalion in. Um, to that conflict, and he uh, had a senior role in that first battalion that went in uh, with the Nigerian army. So he was transferred across to the Nigerian army from the British army, and I went back to boarding school. So I was a very young child. My mum was in Lagos, my sister and I were back in boarding school in England, and my dad was somewhere in in the Congo. Uh, so that was that was a that wow. was a weird a weird time. Uh, and, th and then you know the family all came back together again in England. Uh, but I stayed at boarding school, so I, um, I, I was a, a boarder as a young boy and then at, at high school basically for 11 years. So London, I, I moved to London University to, uh, to study zoology and botany. Of course, London was really attractive then, having been locked up in boarding school for 11 years. I think it's uh, still attractive now. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so that was sort of the backstory for me. And um, I was very lucky I got a, a scholarship to go from London to Durham to do, there was an advanced course in ecology, mm -hmm. a master's degree, intensive master's, I did that, and then secured a scholarship to go and work with Tony Dixon at the University of East Anglia, which, like you know, like Wollongong, is, it was a new university founded in the 1960s, campus-based, um, and a number of very distinguished uh, research groups uh, that had emerged at, at a new university. So at the time when your family was sort of split up over two continents, how did communication go? Was it letter, phone calls? Because nowadays a lot of people probably don't realize it. My kids have got no idea. That yeah. you, people used to go away and yeah. there would be no... So as a, as, a, as a little boy, because of course the school made sure that we did, we all wrote a letter home. And I, I you know, we had aerograms in those days. You remember those? Yeah, those yeah, sort of yeah. like a rice paper? Yep, I remember uh, them. Uh, with the three seams that you licked down and sticked. And so... <laughs> You know, I most probably wrote an aerogram a week and then got a letter back from from my mum and dad. Um, so it was that moment of, you know, waiting for the post, uh, which yeah. we, don't, we don't think about. It's not, it's not a thing anymore because email and SMS and things like that, it's all instant. Yeah. Um, so that's the gap. I mean, I think even when I moved uh, to join CSRO, I can remember ringing back to um, uh, to the UK and it was expensive, you know, an international phone call in yeah. the early 80s. Um, you thought, what am I going to say? And how am I going to say it in five minutes? You couldn't just have a chat 
uh, you know, about, about the weather and all that sort of stuff very easily. Yeah. I remember making a phone call to my mom from Turkey after she hadn't heard from me for four weeks. And the phone call went a bit like, hi, mom, I'm fine. Love to that. Bye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. I yeah, yeah. didn't even listen yeah. to what she said. Yeah, I'm still here. I want to move you forward a bit. I'm going to skip back and forth between yeah. various parts yeah. here. So we've, the listeners have hopefully picked up that we're both at the same university. You're my boss. And I'm, I'm, you're going to leave the university in a few months at the end of June. My question is, what is the most valuable lesson that you learned from your time in Wollongong? Well, I, th I, th I think the, um, the the really big lesson here is is, is that we're still, you know, a young university with enormous enormous potential. And the really the really startling thing at Wollongong compared to other universities I've been at is that because of the strength of engineering and the fact that education was also in the initial fabric as, a, as an entity of the university. Um, it's a very action-orientated mm. community. So some universities, they turn around to the Vice-Chancellor and say, what's your authority to think that? Why would we do that? And so it's a very contested space. At Wollongong, you can put out half an idea and somebody's starting to implement it because it's such a driven place. And I think, I think that's one of the great joys of Wollongong, actually, is that... Is that um, you know, as a the culture is people leaning in, wanting to achieve things and to to do things which are transformative, and that's that's a rare a rare set of activities. And when you when you look at um, sort of the outputs of universities, are we outstanding at teaching, or are we outstanding at research? Universities tend to fall into either corner. And Wollongong is actually somewhere on the curve, trying to optimise. Mm both those things. So the care of the student community here is paramount for for the vast majority of us in the university. And most of us also care about our research labs and our research reputation and the standing of the university at the same time. So somehow we've managed to find that sweet spot of optimising on that that curve between research excellence and teaching excellence. Um, that again is a very weird space mm. to be because most universities don't don't try to set out to do that. Do you think is there a relationship in that with the fact that we're also a young university? I, I did my PhD at a university that was four or five hundred years old, so that used to be what they used to call the Trinity Way. Yeah. Is there such a thing as are we developing our own identity as the Wollongong Way? Yeah, I th I, well, I, th I think I think we are, and I think I think the the fact that there is such an emphasis. On the undergraduates still, um, which in the very big research-led universities, you know, you've got a lot of bright undergraduates who are left to their own devices to solve mm. solve their own way. Um, I, th I think we've put a wrapper around students. I think that's a good thing to have done. So the, you know, the distinctive space that we're moving into, um, I think, has put set students uh, towards the core of our activities, and then clearly. We've, we've, we have focused on the research at the same time. So um, I, th I think the culture is different, and it could, it could well be to do with the age of the university, the fact that you know, Wollongong wanted us to be here, the city of Wollongong wanted us to be here, so they wanted an autonomous institution. So the community loves us in the sense that they're, they're proud of having a major institution. You can go to some parts of the world where it's just another thing in the city, uh, rather than actually being a major, a major feature of the culture of the city, and here we're still, still in that position where, we're, we're valued and cherished, I think, by the local, local community. Absolutely. So I've changed countries a couple of times, and I'm always fascinated when I meet people who have gone back and forth. So, in 2002, if I'm correct, you would have been in Australia for about 20 years. Yeah. And. You worked at CSRO, you were seconded to the Commonwealth, to a Commonwealth Government Department in Canberra, and then went to CSRO to become its Deputy Chief Executive. So 20 years is a very long time to be away from a country. You would have left the UK when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, 
and then you returned when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. What, what made you decide to go back to the UK? Well, I, I was, you're right, I was the, I'd gone back from being on secondment in the Department of Industry in Canberra to become uh, a Deputy Chief Executive in Saro. I think I was the youngest deputy at the time that they'd ever appointed. So I was in my mid forties, mm. um, and I'd sort of formed the view. I loved the job I was doing, and it was actually quite a challenging job. But um, I was either going to be there for fifteen or twenty years, and to become the wise person in the corner. Sarah uh, uh, has no tradition <laughs> of appointing the chief executive from within, so I knew okay. that was a route. And then, and then the phone started to ring, like it does for lots of us, around here's a job opportunity, and. Through that, a vice chancellorship in the UK, paradoxically back in the same city that I'd been at high school in. So mm -hmm. having left at 18, thinking I don't ever need to live in Lancaster again, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, I've been at boarding school all this time, I found myself down the road as the vice chancellor of a university founded in 1964, so another campus-based mm -hmm. young university. Um, and that that for me, was a sort of a major pivot because I'd, I'd, I'd sort of made the decision to leave Saro in my head at some point. And uh, of all the opportunities I, that were around, I knew that going back into academia was actually going to be something that was a fit for my, for my interests. And so I, that, that, uh, that was the opportunity. And, you know, you don't, you don't get offered vice chancellorships very easily. So, you know, Lancaster was a great... A great sort of coup to sort of secure moving there, and um, very similar scale in terms of research outputs to say a university like Wollongong, um, and um, a different mix of strengths to, mm -hmm. uh, to to Wollongong. So you know, engineering at Wollongong very strong, um, but the you know the business school at Lancaster are very strong. So the you have different pistons which are running in different ways, and I think that's the the other interesting thing about being the head of an institution saying, given the relative strengths of, of the schools and faculties, how do we actually move collectively forward as an institution? And you know, that was the big challenge there. Did you feel like a foreigner in your own country when you, well, when you came back? I did, because I had a very strong network in Canberra because I'd worked in, you know, linked to government and I worked in CSRO. I knew a lot of people in universities in Australia. And you know, you only have to be around academic conferences and things like that. You build a network of friends and colleagues. Um, I I had very weak links uh, in in the UK, and um, a university that was saying that they wanted to look outwards rather than look inwards. So um, it had been through a very introspective period, and it. And given where it was geographically located in the northwest of England, they they wanted to look out in different ways. And so I, I had two lucky breaks. One was that um, the Blair administration was in its second term in London, so they'd restructured the economy in the way they wanted to do that. And there were just a lot of opportunities for universities, either for teaching or research, that would land on your desk saying, here's a new, a new initiative which is opening up. So I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards to London and trying to find ways into, into government using the sort of techniques that I'd learned in Canberra to, to, do, to do that. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I, I, was, I was seen as an Aussie who'd landed in London rather than an English person returning. So then people wanted to talk to you because you, you come with a different, a different yeah. set of ideas. Um, and then the other really big thing that had happened um, was the the regional um, development activities in the United Kingdom were were differentially funded out of London and the northwest of England because um, it has large pockets of social deprivation had a lot of additional funding relative to some parts of the UK. Mm -hmm. um, in addition. The UK was still linked to Europe at the time, yeah. and there were then European Commission funding opportunities as well. So um, we, we were able very quickly in my time, we, 
we funded um, uh, a thing called InfoLab 21, which was essentially electrical engineering and telecoms that came together. Uh, and we built a wing for businesses. So it was a, an inbuilt incubator with those two schools. Um, we expanded the management school and built uh, the Lancaster Leadership Center uh, for small and medium-sized enterprises, specifically to say, how could a business faculty help with the restructuring of a regional economy around leadership? Um, and then we won additional money for the environmental school um, where we'd brought together sort of the, the non-medical parts, environment, earth sciences, geography, life sciences, etc. And we won funding for what became the first incubator for environmental sciences, the spin-off companies, yeah. um, in and around environmental issues. And so they, we won several million pounds to build an extension onto that building. Um, and you can see there instantly that all of those three initiatives, while they enhanced the academic um, infrastructure for the university, were all deliberately facing the market to say there are different sets of businesses or policies or whatever that could be enhanced by having a university engaging at, at regional level to do that. Um, so when you go around the campus there now, there's there's a lot of new buildings, as there are in lots of universities around yeah. the world. We've been lucky here, where they've where you've got major centres uh, formed through those sorts of funding, and 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 Blair was interesting. He he'd appointed um, Lord Sainsbury mm. as science minister. Um, and I, I think David Sainsbury is still the longest standing science minister in the, in the UK. Um, so he, when, when he came in, you know, given his private background, he didn't need the ministerial salary. What he was interested in actually was the innovation and science agenda. And I think he'd said, <coughs> let, me, let me go, develop policy. And he'd secured funding through Treasury and then built a systematic change to the research and innovation and science ecosystem over a decade. Uh, that, that, you know, if you, if you think about political achievements from the point of view of universities, mm. that's, that was a major achievement to have had that stability of, of one person with a vision. And when you look at what happened over the course of that decade, there was a lot of funding for, for more basic research. There was more funding for turning ideas into action, and there were more initiatives for businesses to pick up R&D. So it's, it's almost as though you shape the whole ecosystem rather than just doing one bit or another, another bit. Um, and that's, that's had a massive effect um, on the research fabric uh, in, in the UK through the research councils or now the UKRI, um, and the model around how do you take ideas out of universities and, and move them through technology readiness level four, five, six, and, and into things which have got utility for, for companies to then use in some way. Was the academic community open to explore those ideas where they would take their research, actually conduct research with the view of thinking there is a product coming out or an innovation coming out I, here at the end? I think the truth be told, there's a lot of debate about that because, of course, you know, a lot of us would like to see just more discovery grants and things, things like that. And, and indeed, there was additional funding that went into that. But um, I, I think what, what the Blair government was able to do was to put out a series of carrots for people to follow rather than to beat people with sticks. So I think they just put resource down at different levels and said, well, if the teams within universities want to do that, they can compete for these levels. But this is, these are the systematic changes we want to make. So some people stayed doing basic research happily. Yeah. Other people thought, actually, I can now find a different set of relationships and a route to market with ideas or technologies that we're developing. Um, so that, those, those paths were sort of laid out a little bit more formally. Um, but it was never um, the University of X has to pivot in order to do this. It wasn't a stick. It was all around 
we've just laid out our resources. Yeah. If you want to follow the track, you follow the track. Uh, if I can follow on from that, so 2002, you moved to Wollongong, and this podcast series is very interested in research commercialization. Yeah. So 2012. Sorry, 2012. 2012. Sorry, yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I've, yes, you lost a decade. I lost a uh, decade. I apologize <laughs> for that. <laughs> so we, we, we like to, in this podcast, discuss commercialization. What, what do you think, what is Australia good at in terms of research commercialization? Well, it's in, in, interesting because you, if you look at um, the global league tables of universities, the thing that really stands out when you start to map which universities are in the top 100 in the world or the top 200 in the world, um, we don't look like the UK. UK is very strong in business, in humanities, mm. in social sciences, psychology, all of those areas. It's got it's obviously got excellence in engineering, but we've got we've got depth in engineering in the top one and two hundred. We've got depth in computing in the top one and two hundred. We've got some fabulous um, clinical trials places around the country. We've got medical research institutes which are distinctive. And if if you think you know the last thirty years in science, the the USA and parts of Europe pivoted toward biotech, Japan, Korea and China actually pivoted towards the physical sciences and engineering. Mm -hmm. And I think we look more like the Eastern Hemisphere, Japan, Korea and China, than we do North America. The depth of our underlying strength is actually in the sort of AI, computing, engineering, uh, and then the biological applications coming out of engineering now rather than the straight biotech plays that got played out in uh, in North America as a generalization but yeah. but you know if you the patterns of our of our strengths are are rather distinctive um, we should be a lot stronger in actually taking our technology ideas into into the market and I think that's that's the challenge for Australia is, is that we've got we've got this framework, the fabric in place, and you know you can think of the Wenham and Green work at University of New South Wales on photovoltaics. You know, so there's really good examples of laboratories which have worked over three decades in order to uh, to bring ideas to the fore. Uh, we should have oodles of those places, and we've got the latent capacity, I think, to uh, to do that. Um, so you look at AIM here, you know, with battery technology and 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 then the the, the bioprinting and things like that. There's there's sensational stuff here. Uh, we've got uh, smart with infrastructure research. We should see more uh, impacts sort of coming out over time for, through that. And a number of universities have got that sort of fabric in place mm. in Australia. <clears throat> so I th I think that the conditions are set up and. Um, My my understanding of the of the next twenty odd years is is that sort of automation space, robotic space, uh, AI space, um, and you know India and China have made massive investments in some of those fields. We're already pre-adapted to occupy some of those niches. If that if we if we had the resource and the will to build capacity further to link on to business to do that. So do you think that research commercialization, in the particular that the Eastern Hemisphere is doing it different from the Western Hemisphere, is that linked to cultural aspects? It's also linked to the location of where major companies have actually mm. laid down their research centers. So I said earlier on, you know, as a, as a university student, I worked at Unilever R&D. Yeah. yeah. When I was at Lancaster, I could step out of the back door of the university as a vice chancellor Unilever, AstraZeneca, British Aerospace, United Utilities, blah, 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 uh, British Nuclear Fuels, all within an hour, all had senior vice presidents for innovation and research yeah. that I could go and talk to. Yeah. So that landscape, but if you and I step out of the door at Wollongong and say, who can we go and talk to at senior vice president? We've got wonderful companies like Bluescope. Um, and then, you know, 
we got, so Manildra. Radio, radio, hmm? we got Manildra down yeah, the coast. Manildra, and then, yeah. And then we're... But it's, it's a very different landscape. So, you know, in the United States, two-thirds of business R&D is done in companies of 10,000 persons or more. In Australia, two-thirds of business R&D is done in companies of 250 people or less. Mm. So we're working into technology-led, medium-sized enterprises um, where their scale of investment to actually take an idea towards the market, that the, the docking station that we have to design, I think is special to Australia. We can't, we can't just say, what does Germany do, or what does the United Kingdom do, or what does Canada do, or what does the USA do, because the primes are located in those locations, as they are in Korea and places like yeah. that, and they've got very distinctive research laboratories to interact with. It's almost e easier for us to go to Korea and interact in Korea with a with a Samsung than it is to actually say how do we how do we find the technology receptor to go and do that mm -hmm. in in Australia. So somehow that's that's the policy interface that we've got to build, which is to say how do we how do we cross that bridge and enable medium-sized enterprises that want to build technologies here in Australia. Yeah. Uh, that's that's structural. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure that's cultural. I think that's that just reflects the fact that where we've got major companies here, we've got the marketing wing of a company rather than the technology wing of a company because they're selling stuff to us. They're not trying to fabricate new material here necessarily. I mean, they've got small research labs, but they're not at the same scale. Yeah, we're very unique in terms of Australia with their geography. It's both its uniqueness yeah. and it's also an yeah. impediment yeah. to bringing yeah. people in. As you yeah. said, I, I grew up in Europe, so you can, you drive a few hours and you can sample different countries and different yeah. 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 different companies. Yeah. We don't have that in Australia, yeah. so I think, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a very good and, point. And, you know, I, know, I mean, I know when I was in in um, in London, I'll give you one, one example. So GlaxoSmithKline had a very senior person who would interact with, with universities, mainly the Russell Group universities, so this was in sort of drug discovery and things like that. Um, and I'd been at some vice chancellor's events, it had finished, there was a European soccer game on, we'd gone to a hotel that was nearby and we were standing around as you do, watching the soccer on a big screen and having a beer with someone. And this guy, so this is nine o'clock at night, appeared at my side and said, oh Paul, I thought you'd be here. Uh, can we have a <laughs> 10 minute conversation about blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we ended up doing some business development stuff in the middle of some European soccer game. Yeah. And then he wandered off. And then and then he popped up to Lancaster and, and we started to, to build uh, that that relationship, so that just doesn't happen. You know, you can't stand around in a bar in Sydney, uh, in aggregating no. a group of academics, thinking, "Oh, well, I can go and do some business development um, down in that pub." Yeah. Whereas that that was possible; those people knew where we were. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, uh, I, I usually say to people, stop by if you're passing Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, so that, that's, a, that's a relationship. Now, technology helps us now because things like Zoom means that the business development managers for major companies can easily call in and say, virtually, can we actually explore this idea? And that's the opportunity the other, that, mm. that comes out of COVID, I think, actually, that the connectivity is no longer an issue. You don't actually have to be physically in a pub at nine o'clock in London on a Thursday night watching a European soccer game to to, to start that conversation. Yeah. Uh, but it does help to have the physical contact. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those relationship things are immensely important. And that's why mobility of academics are is a critical thing to, to get back after COVID. I think that, that you know, effective study leave models or having... Australians go out to conferences and congresses, having you know senior people like you being able to go and keep those connections going with other academics or with industries overseas. All of that, the, the suitcase science, has has to be brought back to life because that's that's part of the lifeblood, I think, of the Australian science system. So, in, in Australia as well, if you had a I know this is purely hypothetical, you had an unlimited budget. How would you approach the encourage your academics to do 
to do more at research commercialization? Well, I think, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I have to be careful now because I'm sitting on this research commercialization committee for, uh, for, the, for the government, and so that's a real-time Yeah, but please don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble. But, but, I, but I think, I think, the, the, thing, the thing that's emerging quite quickly is the recognition that there's a lot of labs doing TRL 1 to 3, discovery work, linkage work, things like that, that there's the possibility of taking ideas to market at TRL 789, which clearly is commercial investment, and the systemic weakness in Australia is in the middle, four, mm -hmm. five, six. How do you actually, how do you take ideas through? Um, and the government, you know, last week, um, Alan Tudge, the minister, um, released the consultation paper saying, should there be more mission-driven um, uh, investments made in order to bridge strategic gaps? And that's, I think that's partly governments now here and in the UK and in North America and Europe starting to say post-COVID, how do we refill and recharge the economy? How do we create new industries, new jobs, all of that sort of, you know, political things that need to be thought mm. through and how do we reboot the economy? And universities are being thought about as being a source of ideas to do that. So that's great, that bit's great. The, the other bit then is um, what what would cause us to think about missions in a different way? And there's a, there's a new book actually only out in the last few weeks by Mariana Mazzacuto, who's a professor of economics at UCL. So she's pushing this line essentially that says um, we've had 40 years of sort of the Reagan Thatcher view of the world, which is the market knows best, government should be small, and only deal with market failure issues. And this move towards missions is actually going back to more like a Kennedy, how do we put a person on the moon mm -hmm. yeah. uh, type approach to say we, we might actually have a role of government to give a signal that we want to invest in area A or B, but not D or E, in order to turbocharge the economy. How do we use the fabric of academia and the business community to actually build build into that space? So that consultation paper, which is live until the 9th of April, is actually really critical for anybody interested in commercialization, yeah. use of IP, the culture of universities, the receptivity of business. All of those things in, are embedded in that paper. And uh, for, for listeners to this, uh, I think really critical that uh, individuals or or um, groups come together and actually give constructive feedback to the government because you can see this this moment in time, Mark, where I th I think the philosophical narrative around what's the role of government will move post COVID, mm. and it will move towards how do we turn ideas into action and invigorate the economy. Um, and that's not a Labour or coalition statement, it's just, it's just a need which is emerging um, as, as we come out of, of COVID and people are starting to say, what's our exit velocity yeah. back, back into you know, a fully formed economy? Yeah, and probably a lot of people are reevaluating how to do. I'm certainly also thinking about how I do my science now yeah. in a COVID world yeah, and yeah. in a post COVID yeah. world, and yeah. including commercialization, of course. Yeah. Um, let me ask another s sort of serious question and I'll move on to some lighter aspects. How, how do you cope with people that do not share your vision? Well, uh, universities are a broad church. And so, you know, um, there'll be a lot of people who wouldn't share. Uh, my vision of what I've just painted there in the last last five five minutes, and I think um, I think I think in a university context we have to listen to each other. There's no point chatting at each other. Uh, with I think we have to develop outstanding arguments as well. I mean we're good at developing mm -hmm. arguments. Um, I think the tension is: do we do that respectfully, or do we do that uh, <laughs> in a confrontational <laughs> finger way, uh, finger pointing <laughs> way? And you know, and that's that's the debate. I and mean, actually, that's one of the debates you can see in the freedom of speech thing. 
uh, that's that's around at the moment around to what extent um, is any is any approach to put your view legitimate mm. as opposed to doing it in a way um, which is respectful of the needs of the other people in the, in the, in the setting and I think that's that's one of the interesting tensions in 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 universities and we've just seen I think University of Cambridge for example is deleting the notion of respect out of their their statements because they're saying actually we shouldn't constrain the freedom of ideas by forcing it into a cultural notion around uh, where where respect sits so these really interesting interesting yeah. spaces um, so as a vice chancellor you know you have to have a thick skin because you know you can never please everybody all the time and um, you know so I'm you know I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a debate with anybody about anything uh, knowing knowing that there's a lot of ideas out there and um, actually one of the really great joys of universities is that and as you know I try to come around the faculties yeah. when I could for early career presentations the number of times in the last 10 years where I've come to a faculty to see presentations and seen a sensational short 20-minute talk having wandered in not even knowing that was a question let alone you could answer the question yeah uh, so you know when you when you do that I, I would have had 300 of those presentations given to me in the last 10 years uh, that's a that's a real privilege actually to that, that's a very unique perspective on what's going on and in up-and-coming scientists to see all that because not you know I've certainly don't see that because it would be outside my expertise or so yeah, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't take the time to go there. So yeah. that's, that's very and, and, you know, and I, I know, you know, one of the joys about being a biologist is that you, you can take, I mean, I, I struggle with deep bits of philosophy and pure maths when those presentations are on because they're, they're very special fields in terms of the way they communicate. But, but most, most areas of science and social science and, and arts actually uh, are open, you know, in the sort of presentations I hear to sort of general interpretation. And uh, that's one of the great joys, I think, of being in, in the role. You, you just see the breadth of, mm. of what's going on. Um, and it's, it is actually very easy, uh, given my age now, towards the end of my career, to forget that there are a pile of 27 to 35-year-olds out there building their careers and labs and, and wanting to do the sort of things that I've been able to do over a 40-year period since my PhD. So, you know, just thinking through how, how would you set up the lab and solve this problem, yeah. uh, we're still out there as scientists and engineers conceptualizing you know, how do you go about solving that. I think that's very addictive as well, the setting up of a lab and, and answering questions yeah. in that approach. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah. scientists like doing. Yeah, and the, the other great joy of universities, of course, is that you know, while while individuals get older, the model the modal age of the university never changes. No, yeah. <laughs> so every March, you know, we our modal age falls back a little bit because a pile yeah. of eighteen year olds arrive with new ways of asking the same questions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, that's that's a really powerful for all of us. You know, we're challenged by um, that degree of refresh that goes on, and the challenge that comes to us. Uh, from young undergraduates coming into the system. Yeah, definitely yeah. changing. So you're part of a very select group of people in Australia. There are probably only 40 vice chancellors around. So w when you were meeting with other vice chancellors, I don't know if vice chancellors do this, but if you have small talk, what do you talk about? Well, you, usually, either the politics of you know what, what's Canberra or the state government doing, um, or what happened at U University X, because there's always something happening, um, or you know I've I've got a group of sort of vice chancellor friends around the world now, um, so we talk you know a mixture of you know sport as mundane as that, through to. Um, um, so plans for the future or collaboration, things like that. So it's, it's, it's a very collegial space, actually, because um, you, you end up knowing inevitably you know, a handful, maybe 10 vice chancellors really well, so you don't, need, you don't necessarily need all 40, but yeah. you find common cause 
with those with those people. It is very collaborative in that sense. Um, which port do you talk about most? Well, I'm a Manchester City supporter, so I'm, at the moment I'm quite happy to talk about about, about English soccer. Uh, so I've supported Manchester since I was ten, uh, Man City since I was ten, and of course we're riding high at the moment, so it's quite yeah. an easy thing to to uh, to talk about. Uh, I went to Moss Side before they changed because I lived uh, in Manchester for yeah. a couple of years. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. so I never so that, went, I never watched the other side. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> That's, uh, that's, that's, an e that's an easy thing to talk about, but um, but yeah, I, th I, th I think VCs if with, within an institution, sometimes you see problems where you can't share it with other members of staff. You're trying to solve something. You can share those things uh, in the generality with other vice chancellors to say, if you saw X, Y, and Z, have you got any views about how yeah. to solve that problem? Uh, that's why it's really important to have those. It's like any chief executives group, actually having having a reference group of better practice to uh, to share. I think that's very important, and that's yeah. To, I mean, at all levels, probably yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, well, and like just associate deans, deans, you know, DVCs. We we tend to have networks of people yeah. all over the place, and that's that's really because better practice quite often is somewhere else, and finding that is. And bringing it back to Wollongong is a is a legitimate and good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned this uh, new model that the government is coming out, and I'm not sure if you're allowed to mm. comment on it because you, mm. you just mentioned you're on the committee. But what do you think the university landscape will look like in Australia in about five years' time or three years' time, which is a reference point you mentioned before? Yeah. Well, I, I, th I think there'll be there'll be a slight change in the shape of the pyramid. So the you know, the government will invest in basic research because it needs discovery and it needs linkage and it needs CRCs, all of that. I think what we might see is is a more uh, determined way of saying how do we pick up intellectual property and get the university business interface working in order to systematically build TRL 4, 5, 6, mm. 7 in order to say how do we, how do we take ideas. And you... If you if you look back, you know, CSL, Cochlear, ResMed, all came out of either government labs or mm. university labs, um, all listed very successful. But when you go beyond that and you start to say name the next twenty, it's very difficult to do. So I think I think one of the challenges post COVID is to say how do we how do we build some possibilities like that for the future that are strategically important, that are adding value to the economy, that are distinctive things uh, that should be here in, in different ways. So entrepreneurs typically fail a couple of times. Should we train our academics to, not, well, I guess we can't teach each other how to fail, and academics are obviously already accustomed to a lot of failure with our grant applications. You think would there be value in training academics to learn how to fail as a as an entrepreneur? Actually, that doesn't sound too good when I actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. mentioned well, the I th question. I think the 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 step back. So maybe not the existing colleagues we've got. I mean, there's clearly opportunities to go away and, mm. and go on special training courses. But the 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 bit that I I think that we could look at is is whether the PhD experience could be broadened in a, in, in, a, in a way. So clearly there's a lot of people like me who went into a lab, worked a, with a major scholar, produced a nice PhD and then built an academic career and lots, lots of us have that narrative. Um, what we don't have a very strong reputation for in Australia is an industry university PhD program. We don't really have doctoral training programs that allow people to be stretched in different ways. Um, we have some opportunities here at Wollongong for um, PhD students and master's students to do certificates in entrepreneurship and things like yeah. that. So building that in more explicitly into should, we, should there be a landscape where doctoral training programs um, interface with industry become more legitimised? And I think that's a really interesting question. I know when I was in the UK... There were doctoral training initiatives that started to uh, to to come in, 
Um, in my time at Lancaster, there were two that we won. One was in Advances in Social Sciences, which was a collaboration with Manchester and Liverpool and Lancaster. I think we were given 70 studentships wow. over a five-year <clears throat> five period and then told, you work out the co-supervision of those 70 people and what they're going to do. But there's a program report on that. Yeah. Um, Lancaster uniquely won um, the Doctoral Training Centre in Design and that brought together marketing, computing, and the creative arts people to create a brand new type of PhD in, uh, in design um, for, the, for the future. Uh, I think that was 30 PhD students over five years. That's so you know, that scale yeah. of investment, mm. you know, because here in New South Wales, we've got five or six world-class graduate schools across our universities. Mm. We're unique as a state, actually, in the intensity of the HDR provision um, in terms of having those universities and the volume of PhD students. We, as a state, we should be able to pick up some portion of that HDR community and interweave it with um, the industry and business fabric that exists in the state. And then to drive entrepreneurship, understanding of IP, uh, opportunities for the future in a really distinctive way. We've never really tried to do that, I don't think. No, we've, got, we've got little experiments, but it's, mm. it's not been a systematic step change. So I'd, I'd, I, I would start there with the, you know, the 25 to 30 year old PhD students to say, actually, here's a, here's a new style of, of person. And the, re the reason I say that is that if you look at um, PhD students per 1,000 citizens, there's a lot of us in universities in Australia, very few in business. Yeah. Whereas if you go to Germany or Finland or the Netherlands, there's as many people with a PhD per, per thousand people in business as they are in academia. And that, so something happened in those European economies to allow businesses to say it's legitimate to appoint a PhD person into this role. And there's some seamlessness where people are able to go backwards and forwards between academia and business in a way that, you know, we're on segregated railway tracks here. I mean, as soon as yep. you become a senior academic, very different, difficult to skip across to business and then skip back again uh, a few years later. Our formation systems are not designed for that. Our culture tends to seal you off once you leave. All of those sorts of things. Yeah, and, you know? and also it, it starts, like you're saying, going to the PhD route. That's a really important point because as a PhD supervisor I train my students to write papers to do experiments yeah. I never train them to to run companies and I yeah. had quite a few of my PhD students that have gone on to start companies but yeah. they do that in their own time and we do have here obviously a certificate in business that can help but that's a very valid point and yeah. that's that's part of a discussion yeah. we train our students to do research yeah and, it, and I think the problem is is that you know Students work 50, 50 weeks a year for three years collecting data roughly to, to produce a PhD. Um, where are we going to carve out the time to say, here's these other skills that you need uh, to, to build in? Where are those other opportunities? And so that the role of the supervisor and the other, the other people within the university framework uh, that could add in to the student, there's a, there's a debate then around the type of supervision and the signalling of opportunity back to the students. And the assessment. And the assessment, all of that, yeah. yeah. So and I know the, 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 there are studentships where you can go backwards and forwards, do an applied piece of work in a company and come back in. So those sorts of frameworks. But somehow I think we need to open up that box and say, is that one way of driving, you know, enabling culture change uh, to meet these needs in the next decade? And I think that's quite an exciting that is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I could talk about this for yeah. another hour, but I'm yeah. mindful of our time. So one of the things I, I read when I was researching you is you were appointed a Deputy Lieutenant of Lancashire in 2009, and then a Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 2012 for your services. So the, the, the former goes back to the reign of Henry VIII, if my information yeah. is correct. And the latter is an order of chivalry that has the motto for God and empire. So, the question is: Are there any particular things you need to 
do to maintain your deputy lieutenant and commander of the British Empire status? Yeah. Well, I th- on the, the on the on the CBE, yeah, it's because that's a bit like the Order of Australia. That comes with a set of rules around sort of public standing. Um, so in theory, those awards can be taken away uh, from you. On the deputy lieutenancy, it's interesting. Um, there's a there's a, a lieutenant for Lancashire, as there is for all the counties of England. That's a bit like the governor of each state. And within Lancashire, there were two dozen people who were deputies. So, you know, I, I would have presided at citizenship ceremonies oh, for wow. people becoming British yep. from all over the world and had gone to various events and things like that. So there's sort of a structural role where you've got um, people who might be vice chancellor, those things, having other roles in, in society. Um, we tend not to do that here. I mean, I think there's a deputy governor who covers for the governor of the state. Yeah. But, um, but we tend to organise those sorts of activities in a slightly different way. And I think it would be true in, in, in Germany, for example. I, th- I think there are a dozen, 16 states or something like that. And Netherlands must be organised in a similar... Yeah, we have uh, provinces. Provinces. So, so there's those, you know, who, who runs those, who provides cover and governance and those sorts of things within each of those historic structures. So these are you know, slightly ancient and sort of historic titles that go. I mean, the, the CBE, I think, is actually was founded during the First World War yeah. to allow recognition of the general public who'd, who'd served in different ways, and it's expanded uh, since then. Are there any uh, perks? No, no perks at all. Oh. It's, it's, you, you, you get given a nice certificate and things like that. It's not when you fly uh, into the UK. They go like, no, they don't go hello. This week? Like that. No, no perks for any of that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm almost done with my questions. Yeah. I have two quick questions. What, what is next for you? Well, obviously, uh, retirement from a full-time role. So I, I mean, my PhD was 1980. It's a historic document now. Um, I've had 40 years as a scientist and as, as a sort of research leader and an administrator of universities. Um, so I'm, I'm doing some things already. I've joined the, the, the board of trustees of the General Sir John Monash Foundation, which is about like the Rhodes Scholarships or the Fulbright mm-hmm. Fellowships. So we award somewhere between a dozen and 20 uh, scholarships a year for people to go and do masters or PhDs overseas uh, and some, some truly outstanding uh, Australian students uh, who, who go on to that and uh, for your listeners I mean well worth uh, looking at that scheme for, for students who, who are outstanding who, who want to go on and study at Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Princeton or you know University of Amsterdam doesn't matter where it is but they're, they're, they're all it's a heterogeneous program of, of scholarships. Um, I've also gone on to the board of the Global Foundation, which is an Australian think tank that tries to position uh, Australian uh, activities for the greater good globally. Um, and so I'm doing that. And then obviously the research commercialization stuff is still going in the background. And that will, that will run as a, for a little while yet with government as they work out what they want to do. And then beyond that, I'll, I'll start to think how much time uh, You've got left. I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got left because there, there, there's an infinite amount of pro bono work. So you know, it's it's quite easy to, to join charities and boards and things like that. But in in reality, and it's like like all of us, you should only do those things if they're part of your passion. Yeah. You know, if you're there just occupying a seat but you're not passionate about it, you should move away from it. I think it has to it has to be something that drives you. I mean, that's the joy of being in a university, if you're interested in post-school education, the life of young people and, you know, the emergence of new ideas, you know, universities are for you. And I was why, I, you know, being at Lancaster and, and here at Wollongong has been a real joy for, for 20 years. That's a really good, nice quote to say, if you like young people and you're yeah. interested in new discoveries, yeah. universities yeah. are the place to yeah. be. That's yeah. true. That's yeah. so true. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for an absolutely fascinating chat. Let me finish with a question I'm going to ask all my guests, and uh, you're, of course, my, my first guest. Are you a good or a bad loser when you play games? Uh, 
I'm not, I'm not a, a, a bad loser, but I only like to play competitive games. So I don't, I don't play for fun. <laughs> and it's a, it's a consequence of, I played cricket at reasonably high standard. Um, so I don't like just to muck around. If yeah. I'm going to play, I want to play something which is... You're going to do it properly. Real hard, properly, yeah. Uh, so I'm happy to lose having done that, but I don't, I don't just like to muck about. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes right? sense. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a great answer. Yeah. 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 I like that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, terrific. Great to talk. Yeah. And that concludes my very first interview for Lab Notes. A fascinating conversation with a fascinating person. Now, while I was packing up, Paul and I continued to chat. And he told me an amazing story about his dad's experiences in the Second World War in Burma, where they were fighting over a piece of land the size of a tennis court. For now, I am signing off. My name is Mark Anaponos, and I will hand you over to Leo Stevens to finish this episode of Lab Notes. See you next time. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris.